As my wife and I were leaving home this morning to come to church, as we drove out in the street in front of our home, I said, Wake up, you infidels! It's time to go to church! You ever felt like doing that before? You'd be surprised. Nobody's listening. Everybody's sleeping, except you. You're here today, and I thank the Lord for your presence here. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to First Peter, the epistle of First Peter, chapter 2, and we're going to read two or three references in this epistle. First Peter chapter 2, Verses 21 through 23. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, He threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Now in chapter number 3 of that same epistle, verse number 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And then in chapter 4, verse number 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. And in chapter 5, verse number 1. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Permit me to repeat chapter 4, verse 1 again. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. You may be asking at this point in time, why is our pastor spending so much time on the sufferings of Christ? Does he not know? That this is December. And does he not know that in December we call attention to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Why spend so much time on the sufferings of Christ? I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm a little cautious about making this statement. 
We are not saved by the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Nor are we saved without the birth, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Rather, we are saved by his sufferings. That if any emphasis is given in the month of December, it should be given every month of the year that Christ Jesus suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Last week I brought you the first in a series of three messages on the sufferings of Christ. At that time I dealt with the earlier sufferings of Christ during his life. Those sufferings that took place before Golgotha, before the cross, before his crucifixion, before Calvary. And I mentioned about nine things and I quickly mentioned them again today. These were times of suffering for Christ in his life. In his life. Number one, his growing up in abject poverty. Number two, his being subject to constant verbal abuse. Number three, he was stalked and terrorized. Number four, he was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Number five, he was denied three times by Simon Peter. Number six, he suffered. Oh, how he suffered in Gethsemane. He was arrested as a common criminal. He was falsely accused and illegally tried. And he was condemned to die on a cross. In the study today, I want to deal with this subject, the physical aspect of his final sufferings. The physical aspect of his final sufferings. Again, and this is time three, I've read it for you in verse 1, chapter 4 of 1 Peter. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise... With the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. It is twice stated in that one verse, he suffered in the flesh. It's one thing to read it. It is another thing to enter into it and begin to think about what it must have been like for Christ to suffer I mean, of all men, why would he who came to be king of kings and lord of lords should suffer, suffer in the flesh? There is a verse in Galatians chapter 3, 13, that makes this statement, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. I raise the question, What was this curse? 
What was this curse? Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Well, I believe it was twofold. First of all, it was physical death. That's a curse. And second of all, it was spiritual death. And that is a curse. The reference in it was a physical death is Genesis 3.19. Let me read it for you. The Lord said these words to Adam in the Garden of Eden after he had sinned. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. From dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And it speaks of the continual death of the human race from Adam's day until the present hour in which we live. But it also involved a spiritual death. That's a curse. For in Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, The Lord said, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, Now watch this, In the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. There have been some to find fault with the Scriptures by saying, that Adam did not die the day he ate the fruit. I beg to differ with you. He died the day he ate the fruit. Not physically. That would come 900 years later. But the day he disobeyed God, he died. How did he die? He died spiritually. He shriveled up spiritually inside. Thus, Christ becoming a curse for us, And if Christ has become a curse for us, he must die physically and he must die spiritually. That's the curse. That's the curse. The twofold aspect of his physical sufferings, that's what we're concerned about today. The physical aspects of Christ's final suffering. In the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12, verse number 2. Hebrews, chapter 12, verse number 2. It says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, and he mentions two things, he endured the cross, And number two, he despised the shame. The twofold aspect of his physical sufferings, it involved shame and it involved death. Let's take them just oppositely. That is, reverse the direction. First of all, it it involved shame. It involved shame. The scripture says, despising the shame. Did you notice that? He despised the shame. Shame is meant to be dishonorable and disgraceful. Shame can often be worse than death. 
There have been many people, my dear friends, who were not only tempted but executed suicide because they could not bear the shame of something that had happened in their life. Shame is a terrible thing. It is humiliating. Let me give you two examples of what shame can do. You need not turn to it if you'll just listen to me as I read it. One is in 1 Samuel chapter number 31, verses 1 through 5, and it has to do with Saul just before he died. He committed himself, he committed suicide, but those things are revealed here. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan, Abinadab, Melchiasha, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul to his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. Saul chose to kill himself rather than be captured by the uncircumcised Philistine. He had rather die than to be captured by the enemy. There's another good example of that by a man whose name was Samson in the book of Judges, chapter 16, verses 25, and a few of those verses that follow. And it came to pass when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport. And they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me that I may fill the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and there were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld Samson while he made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee. Strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be avenged of the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up, on one with his right hand and on the other his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself and with all his might. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. Samson had rather take his life 
than to face the mockery of the Philistine. Shame. Shame. Have you ever been in a position where you experienced a little bit of shame? Maybe it was done, you thought, accidentally. Maybe it was something was just a minimal thing, not too much to even mention. Or maybe it was something very, very seriously. Sometimes we make a joke by referring to it as getting your hand caught in a cookie barrel. Getting caught doing something that we ought not to do. The shame of it. The shame of it. Shame can often be worse than death. But not only does this text in Hebrews 12.2 talk about shame, but it talks about pain and death. The Bible says he endured the cross. Please note, he did not enjoy the cross. He endured the cross. His death would be the most painful of all deaths. The death of the cross. And then thank the Lord for Dr. Luke. Because he speaks of both shame and pain. In Luke chapter number 18. Verses 31 through 33. Luke 18, 31 through 32 and 3. Then he took unto him the twelve men. Said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day... He shall rise again. Luke speaks of the shame. He will be mocked. He will be spitefully entreated. And he will be spitted on. And it also involves the pain. He will be scourged and put him to death. Dear friend, that's what the Lord came to do and I tell you there is a danger please understand this there is a danger of minimizing the birth of Jesus Christ or minimizing the purpose of his coming when we eliminate the fact that he was suffering for sins and the sins of God's people when he came and he suffered shame And these things. Now let's look at this suffering of shame. Suffering of shame. The scripture uses the word M-O-C-K-E-D. He was mocked. That means to be made a fool of. They put on him a purple robe. They mocked him as king. They put on him a purple robe, a crown of thorns and a reed in his hand for a scepter, a scepter being a rod or a staff to lean on. And they said in mockery, Hail, King of the Jews. Notice they said it in mockery. Then they took the scepter from his hand 
and began to beat him over the head with it, what mockery and ridicule. I'm so afraid of being misunderstood in this message. I believe that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. And I believe he was born in a stable in Bethlehem. And I believe the wise men came at a given time seeking the one who would be king of kings and lord of lords. I believe those things. But my dear friends, let him grow up. Don't keep him an infant. Don't keep him a baby. Because he never saved anybody being a baby. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, Brother Cozart, we could have gone just most anywhere today and we'd heard a real good message on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and we'd sing a bunch of carols and everybody go home and say, whoopee! May I say to you, there was no whoopee when Christ came into this world. There was not. We've manufactured it. I stand to be corrected but I believe the noisiest time of the year is December. Everybody not only gets busy going here, going there, doing this, doing that, buying this, buying that, parties, all of these things, and we put a smile on our face, and we make a little noise and say, this is wonderful, My soul, dear Christian, think about the sufferings of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people. Think about that. The shame that he faced. And he knew when he came into this world it was going to be that way. They mocked him as a king. They mocked him as a prophet. They blindfolded him and began to slap him in the face with their fists and their hands saying, Who did it? Who did it? Oh, if he was a prophet, he'd be able to tell us who did it. They mocked him as a man. They stripped him of his clothes and whipped him as a runaway slave. He was probably naked or limited to a brief loincloth when publicly crucified. You know, in the beginning, not now, but in the beginning, nakedness was a shame. And it was because Adam and Eve were naked that they hid themselves. They mocked him as the Son of God. While on the cross, the crowd jeered. And I'm quoting scripture here. If you be the Son of God... Come down from the cross. And they said concerning Christ dying on that cross, He saved others. Let us see if He can save Himself. Let God deliver Him if He will have Him. This man talks so much about God being His Father. If God really loved Jesus, why did God do something? Utter blasphemy. They spat on him. That's what the Bible says. 
They would not spit on the floor. Did you know the Pharisees would not do that? They would not spit on the floor, but they spit in the face of the Son of God. They mocked him in his praying. When he prayed, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They said, he's praying to Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come down and save him. Nothing but sheer shame and ridicule and mockery and blasphemy. Think for a few moments about the suffering of pain and death. So much for the shame of it. Despising the shame of it. The suffering of pain and death. The Bible says he endured the cross. He endured it. Where do we start? The beating. While before the high priest and later before Herod, Christ was beaten in the face by the fists and hands of the enemy. This left his face bloody and bruised. They pulled out his beard. They didn't shave his beard. They pulled it out. According to Isaiah chapter 50 verse number 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from their shame and spitting. And then there was the crown of thorns. The crown of thorns. The thorns in Palestine were about four to six inches long. They wove them in and out so that when placing it upon the victim's head, the points would pierce the tender vessels of blood. And blood would then freely flow down into the victim's eyes while he hung on the cross. And then that scourging took place. Scourging. It was administered by six different men so that the last stroke would be just as severe as the first stroke. Thirty-nine stripes, thirty-nine strokes. One person would get tired, tired, tired of doing that. So they brought in some men, six different men would apply this type of torment to the victim. The victim was arched over so the skin of the back was drawn tight. The beating was so brutal that quite often the victim died at the hitching post. He was to receive 39 stripes. The scourge was made up of a leathern woven handle some 18 inches long. At the end of many, were many leather leashes and on the temp tip of each leash was a piece of broken bone or metal. It would cut deeply into the flesh. 
when it was applied. There's some historians say that it was so brutal that when that scourge was being applied to the victim that some of those leashes would wrap around the victim's head and actually pull the eyeball out of its socket while they were scourging them. It left the back of the victim one mass of bloody flesh and then the crucifixion. Attaching the victim to the cross. You need to read up on this. With hammer and spikes, the hands and the feet were nailed to the cross without any painkiller or anesthetic. It wasn't just a tear of the flesh, my dear friends. It was driving these massive pins into the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ without any painkiller or anesthetic. Generally, it would take two soldiers to hold the victim's hand while one additional soldier would do the driving of the spikes. But not so with this man, Jesus Christ. He willingly laid down his life for sinners. They told him what to do, and he did it. And they nailed his hands to the cross. The raising of the cross. They first of all had put the cross on the ground, laid the victim on the cross, nailed his body to that cross, and then lifted the cross in an upright position to sink it into the ground. The cross would be lifted up with the victim on it, lined up with a previously dug hole in the ground and dropped into place. Do you understand what I'm saying? You previously dig the hole to where that big, cross is going to go into and it was a deep hole so that when the bottom of the cross hit the bottom of the hole it did something the historians say the force of this pulling on the victim would call cause indescribable pain it pulled the bones out of socket in the victim's body not talking about anybody here. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The unbearable fever and thirst. Christ had been up all night, as you know, when you study your Bible. He had had nothing to drink. He had bled in Gethsemane as well as at his trials and scourging. With the intense pain and loss of blood, his fever began to surge and he was overcome with tremendous thirst. No wonder he cried out on the cross, I thirst. I'm so thirsty. I thirst. And so they gave him vinegar to drink. And then the experience of physical death. The Lord had to voluntarily give consent for death to seize his body. He could not die until he gave the permission 
for death to occur to his body. You say, well, where do you get that from? In the book of John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And so the Lord gave voluntary consent for death to seize his body. And when that happened, his soul was separated from his body. You live not because you have a body. You live because you are a soul. And that soul lives in a body. And when death occurs, my dear friend, the soul separates from the body. Luke twenty three forty six, Jesus cried with a loud voice, and I imagine it it was quite loud, don't you? He cried with a loud voice, and this is what he said, Father, into thy hands, watch this, I commend my spirit, and he, Christ, gave up the ghost. The soul or the spirit could not leave the Son of God until he gave it permission. And when the soul vacated the body, instantly death occurred. He expired. He died. Why did our Lord go through all of this? Did he not say, I've got the power to take my life? I've got the power to give it. Then why didn't he do it? Why didn't he stop the whole process? There's an answer for that in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. And we'll close with this reference. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ was born, spoke this about the coming Messiah. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in order to seek and to save that which was lost, he had to take their sins upon himself so that by the grace of God, sinners could take his righteousness upon themselves. 
and he had to suffer to do that. That's the reason I began this message by saying we're not saved by the virgin birth. As a matter of fact, Romans 5.10 says we're saved by his life. By his life, not by his birth. Brother Cozart, do you think it's a good thing, a befitting thing that we call attention to the birth of Christ? I certainly do, and I would not minimize that at all. But don't stop there. Go a little bit further. Why did he come? What did he do when he did come? And he is king of kings, and he is lord of lords. And one day we're going to see him because he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God by faith in him. The physical, the physical aspect of the final sufferings of Christ. Now, Brother Fred is scheduled to preach next Sunday, and I'm looking so forward to having this brother come and share the word of God with us. And if we're still here in the last Sunday of December, we're going to take the spiritual, the spiritual sufferings of Christ, final sufferings of Christ that he had to go through in order to qualify as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You've been so kind to listen, and I hope and pray you'll be edified by it. Let's stand, please, for prayer.